Good morning. Our scripture today is from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I am loving preaching this year. It was a little more than a year ago, we started a journey through the whole scriptural narrative. We started thinking, let's just try the Old Testament, see how that goes, and God bless that so much, we thought, well, it's only logical to move to the life of Jesus. When Vit and I were newlyweds, we taught at a Christian school in New Jersey, and the history teacher there was famous for starting the year by writing the word history, and then changing it to his story. That's what it is. It's the story of Christ. And that's what the Old Testament is. We saw Christ on every page. And we saw the word become flesh and dwell a while among us, transform the lives of those he touched, take the cross, which had always been the plan, bear the curse of sin, rise again on the third day, And so today we come to the part of scripture that is arguably our story, not just a story of the first followers of Jesus. In the mid 18th century, Europe was a powder keg. Great social and moral inequities, a lot of injustice, the Industrial Revolution had contributed to it. Things were just ready to explode and finally in France they did and we know that as the Great Bloody Revolution. But something else happened in England. There was a revolution of the heart, of the soul. We know it as the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening in the mid 1700s was so significant across the islands of the British Empire. It's estimated that one out of between five and six people were converted and swept into the church. Imagine that, 20% of the population, profound. Revolution, but not a blood revolution. It was a grace revolution. It was a Christ revolution. Some of the finest organizations and initiatives that Britain can be proud of were birthed out of that great awakening. The SPCA, 
came out of the Evangelical Great Awakening, the Society of Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Did you know that? It shaped politics. It shaped civic responsibility. The wealthy received a new sense of grace and mercy, and the poor received a new sense of personal value and responsibility that transformed that society. One of the most famous results was William Wilberforce. Many of you have seen that movie several years ago that came out about his life and his work to abolish slavery called Amazing Grace. Britain abolished slavery a full generation before the United States did. That's how transformed this nation was. So people look at our society today and we find ourselves asking, what is the hope? Many of us believe What it really needs is another great awakening. But how do we know what a great awakening looks like here today? Well, it happens that we have a story in our hands, a historical record by an eyewitness of the first great awakening that is the source of all true great awakenings, and it's the book of Acts. What God did in this remote part of the world was to take a group of uneducated peasants without any political influence and use them to literally conquer and reshape the greatest empire up until that point. That's what happened in the book of Acts. So when we look at this book, we are looking for nothing less than to recapture that story because what God did then He can do today. In fact, it is his desire and will to do today through us. Lindy took us into Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. If you didn't turn there when she read it, would you turn there with me now? We're simply going to look at this introductory passage to the book. These first 11 verses are to Acts what an acorn is to a great oak tree. The whole tree is in that acorn. And that's true this passage. If I had one shot at telling you what the book of Acts was about, it would be these 11 verses. Because that's exactly what Luke intends, to tell us what we're going to see so that we can see it through the right lens. The whole of the story and the whole of what it means to be a part of a great awakening is here. And therefore, these first 11 verses encapsulate the whole of the true Christian faith. Make no mistake, when great awakenings occur, it happens when men and women recover the original essence of Christianity. That's what the word revival means, recovering the original. So let me just pose a thought here. Look at the increasingly smaller influence that the church today is having on our culture. Is it possible that the church that exists in America today has lost the original essence of Christianity? See, most of us say, well, I I think I know what Christianity is. Isn't Christianity asking Jesus for forgiveness and then spreading that forgiveness and doing your best to live a life that pleases God? Isn't that what Christianity is? Well, if that's all that Christianity was, don't you think we would be seeing an awakening? But we're not. We're not impacting our culture. We're hardly impacting the city. Let me go further to suggest that as excited as we are, two weeks ago we had our annual celebration 
We talked about how in two years, God has allowed us to become a pretty stable congregation. For New England, we're actually not that small anymore. But let me ask you a question. How many people have come into the kingdom of God because that many people have come into the Journey Community Church? You see, a church is not really growing the way God intended it to grow if the kingdom of God is not expanding because of that growth. Now, I don't say that in any way to say that I'm not thrilled to death that all of you who love Jesus have found us and share that vision with us. There's nothing wrong with that, but what I'm telling you is we are not growing the kingdom of God if we are only growing a church with believers. And if that is all we are, then let me further say we don't understand authentic Christianity. Yeah, I want to be clear to you. Our intent here is not just to understand the book of Acts, but to recover it and to recover the transforming work of God, not just in your and my lives and in our kids' lives and in our families' lives, but in this city and in this nation and in this world. Sounds almost arrogant to think that God could start something like that here. I'm not saying that because we have any corner on the market or that any of us individually are deserving. I'm not saying that. But if God could use 120 people who were less educated and less resourced 2,000 years ago to do that, could he use us? And why not? So when we look at this passage, let's capture the essence, the original essence again. And it really boils down to three things that we can look at. It would be, first of all, the gospel or truth. It would be power or the Holy Spirit, and it would be mission. The first is truth, and that's found in verse, verses one through three. Let's read that again. In my former book, Theophilus, just by way of quick background, next week we're gonna take a little more time and give some more background and some more interpretive keys to the whole book. Luke is writing the book of Acts as a sequel to his gospel for the very same person, Theophilus. The, the best way to honor the book of Acts is to have work through the book of Luke first. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. Acts builds on those stories, and that's what Luke is trying to get us to understand. All that Jesus did, not just said, did. You see, because Christianity is today regarded as one of the great world religions, religion is about what we do. True Christianity is about what Christ did. What he said was all about what he had come to do. And then he goes on and he explains what Jesus did. And the first was that he suffered. Why did Jesus suffer? Peter himself reminds us of that in his epistle. Let's say this verse together. He bore our sin in his body on the cross so that we might die for sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. Why did Jesus suffer? He suffered for sin. Yeah, that's, that's the hard word for so many who want to be more modern and sensible Christians. Having to admit that his whole purpose for coming was to die for our sins so that you and I didn't have to die for them. There's no transformation without an acknowledgement of where the transformation needs to happen in your and my hearts. But can only do that if we recognize our condition. And the Bible calls that condition sin. 
Recently, I was at a, a service in a, in a mainline denomination, church that has adopted a more modern view of church by removing offensive thoughts. And in going through the hymn book, they had taken out any mentioning of sin of the curse. Amazing grace was. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved and set me free. What's the original word? Do you know when that hymn was written? The Great Awakening of the mid-1700s. And modern Christianity says, no, 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 no. It's enough to say Jesus saves us from hurts that the world has done to us, from what other people have done to us. By his wounds I'm healed, I'm healed from illness, I'm healed from the wounds of my childhood, from the injustices that I've experienced in my society. I'm a victim, I need Jesus to save me. That's not Christianity. Christians ought to seek to right injustice. That ought to be part of it, but that's not the essence of it. That's the result. The result of having hearts transformed, and hearts are only transformed when we recognize that inside we all are broken because of sin, and Christ died for that sin so that you and I didn't have to. I sat through that ceremony, and there were some beautiful things said by by people who knew the Lord, and you could just tell, but service itself, the, the, the pastor, really, what did he have to offer? Nothing, nothing to offer. The church was a white clapboard coffin. Is that too strong? (laughs) Those who profess a form of godliness, Scripture says, but deny the truth thereof. Real Christianity's truth is rooted in the suffering Savior, who, because of his great love for us, didn't leave us in our sin, but took that punishment so that we could receive grace. That's the best news of all. All it takes is a little honesty. And that's the beginning of the transformation. Truth, he suffered. But not only did Jesus suffer, Jesus rose again. He gave many evidences of this. It's interesting that Luke makes a point of pointing that out. We tend to think that we are more educated in the scientific age that these people back then, because they were superstitious, it was easier for them to believe. But actually, the society of the Jewish faith in Jesus' day was the hardest of all to get to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. First of all, they they believed God was completely separate and apart from us and would never be incarnated like Jesus. And secondly, only some believed in the resurrection, but the resurrection they believed in was a resurrection at the end of days and a general resurrection of all people. In our case, it would be like, um, we'd be skeptical of it, unscientific. Back then, it was heresy. It was worth being put to death for. And that's why Luke says he offered many persuasive evidences that he's raised from the dead. Jesus didn't just stay dead. He had victory over death in the resurrection. And therefore, it's a waste of time just to follow him as though he were a dead religious leader who taught a lot of great things. And now, like all the other religions of the world, we're just going to follow his teaching and admire him and and marvel in the life he lived. Because he's still alive. (laughs) He's still working. He's working in you and me today. And that's one of the most powerful parts of the book of Acts. The church, as it matures, begins to call itself, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ. 
because they understood the reason why, and this is the third thing that Luke reminds us about Christ, and that is that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and from there he will come again to judge the living and the dead, as our creeds teach us. Luke taught us that, the Gospels teach us that, the book of Acts teaches that, that Jesus went away, but the angel said he's gonna come again. So Jesus is not gone as in he's finished, He is gone so that the Holy Spirit can come now and be present not just in one human form, but in millions of followers. What Jesus could do one person at a time, one crowd at a time, through his body, the church, he can do through millions of people and therefore transform the whole world. So he is living and active and he is at work through his new body, which is the people of God, the church. These things are critical that we understand. And they are the high points of what we call the gospel. It's why the church for centuries has used this very short and simple confession. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Say that with me. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. That's the essence, it's the gospel. And without it, there is no transformation that is possible, no awakening. The second piece of the essential essence of the Christian faith that is meant to be a companion to the truth of the gospel is the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at verse four. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Spirit. Verse seven, it is not for you to know the time or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. This is a critical component to the true great awakening of the early church. It's power because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we're gonna talk about this a little more in the weeks to come, especially when we look at Pentecost itself. But that is a radical change. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament came upon people for certain empowerment, but then came off of them. And one of the unique differences between followers of Jesus in the New Testament and the Old Testament is that we have this incredible dynamic, the empowering presence, constant abiding, never departing presence of the Holy Spirit. And that ought to shape us. That Greek word for power, how many know what the word is? Anybody? The word is dunamis, same word that we get dynamite for. It's meant to be explosive power, power that changes the landscape, power that tears down strongholds. It's the very power of God in us because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Where is that today? Where is that today in your life? Where is that revealing itself in the church? Praise God, we've had lots of ways that God has confirmed that he's present and working through the journey. But are we seeing all that he should? If people aren't coming to Christ, the answer is no. The power of Christ is not working in us in such a way that the kingdom of God is expansing. And God wants that type of power to happen. Now for some of you, that scares you. 
For others of you, that's exactly what you seek because of your, your upbringing. You're used to the more mystical aspect of the church. Others of you, like me, were raised in the more thoughtful, more what we would refer to as intellectual side of evangelicalism. This is what I want to say to, to both those groups. The true essence of Christianity is always a perfect balance of truth and power. It's always a perfect balance of truth and power. And those who just focus on power, seeking that as though that itself is what transforms, they're missing the point. In fact, nowhere in the whole New Testament does anyone ever pray and ask God for power. Where is the cultural transformation that many of these movements of the Holy Spirit that have happened in our lifetime where we say there's a revival happening up north or down south? Where has the cultural transformation occurred? You see, it's not just the experience, just the power, can never be. But the equal reality is that just the arguments and ideas of our faith, there are those that have made it their place to be the intellectual stronghold for professing these truths. We need that but it's powerless without the living presence dynamic of the Holy Spirit. If it's just an intellectual discipline, it's a coffin too. The essence of Christianity is truth and power, and then a third reality, and that's mission. He goes on, verse seven. It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Listen, the real essence of Christianity is not just the truth of the gospel without which there's no ability to transform. It's not just the power and presence of the Holy Spirit for your own personal good. It carries with it for every single one of us a sense of mission. You cannot say, I'm a Christian because it works for me. The fellowship I get, the teachings make my life better. It works, therefore I'm a Christian. Either Christianity is true for everyone or it's not true at all. You've heard that expression, Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. That's not in scripture, but that's truth. That's truth. You don't come to Christianity and say, I'm gonna try it out and see if it works for me. You determine, is it true? And if it's true, (laughs) it'll work. It'll work for everybody. You can't just come to Christianity and say, I'm coming to see if it'll work for me because you're treating Christianity as some sort of life improvement workshop. And it's just all about making your life better. Christianity becomes a light shown on me for my good. True Christianity is a light that is put in me that changes me from the inside and then bursts out into a transformation of others. And if you don't have that, then you have to ask yourself, am I following Christianity because it works for me or because it's true and do I have a passion, therefore, to see others' lives transformed by it? I think it's worth a really hard look in all of our lives to see why we're Christian and ask ourselves, where's the awakening in my life? Where's the awakening in the lives of others around us? Because mission is part of the essence of our faith. Let's look at how he describes it. It has this geographical strategy, right? Three phrases, in Jerusalem, 
and then in Judea and all Samaria, some strong racial and ethnic barriers there, but basically the same region, in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. As churches, we have historically seen this as our strategy for world missions. But let me suggest that rather than this being a plan by Jesus, it's more of a prophecy, because that's exactly what happened. We're gonna go through the book of Acts, and we're gonna see that it started in Jerusalem, and they were all very happy in Jerusalem. And the words of Jesus, go and make disciples of all nations, that just hung there on some back shelf someplace while they were enjoying the fellowship of the saints. And it took God to bring the fire of persecution (laughs) for them to be dispersed. And as they went, all Judea, Samaria, they shared Christ, people came to faith, and then the gospel came to the epicenter of the world, Rome. That's the story. This is as much a prophecy of what's going to take place and what we're going to see as it is a strategy. So I I think that's worth looking at. Uh, The the more important thing for us in considering uh, recapturing the real essence is this very word witness. The word witness is in its root the word martus, from which we get the word martyr. What Jesus is saying here to his disciples is more than you're gonna tell people about me. Let it come up in your conversations. You know, you'll be my witnesses. Yeah, I know Jesus. Yeah, I put on my Facebook, Christian. (laughs) That's not what he's saying. He's not even saying witness as in a court of law when it is called on you by obligation to give word. This word witness means one who is radically committed, complete devotion and radical commitment to the cause of which I am a witness. Let me help us capture the full nature of what it means to be martus. What does it say in verse three after Jesus was resurrected he was teaching on? What was his main theme even after the resurrection? The kingdom of God. Remember we said that was the primary message at the beginning? When Peter says you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus said in the gospels on this declaration, I will build my church and the very gates of hell will not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So let's be absolutely clear. Our mission as the church is nothing less than being the vehicle through which the reign of Jesus extends, not just in your and my lives, but to the whole world. The mission is about extending the reign of Christ because that's what the kingdom of God is. The word kingdom, basileia, is not about geographic reign, That's what the church, when it became the Holy Roman Empire, got wrong. They thought they could take it by military might, and it was all about geography. It wasn't. The word basileia is the act of reigning. Where Christ rules hearts, the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God doesn't need to have a flag on the capital in order to rule the hearts of the citizens of that nation. Whether it's in communist China or America, It's where he reigns that the kingdom of God is. See, we're to extend that, and we do that through the preaching of the gospel. The second thing I want you to see is back up to verse one. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus, what's that next word? Began to do. There's something really important there. What Luke is getting at is, it's still gonna be Jesus that's at work in this next chapter. The gospel, Jesus incarnate, was part one. 
This is the continuation of the very work of Christ through us. He began to do it. And what did Jesus begin to do? Well, he suffered. He taught. He died and lived a resurrected life. So if we are the new body of Jesus and we are to continue the work that Jesus did, what does being a martus mean? It may mean suffering. And we're going to see that that's exactly what they're called to do. But it also means in dying to ourselves, living the resurrected life in Christ. And they lived that power of the resurrection. That's what it means to be martus, to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. I honestly believe, I am firmly convicted as I stand here today, that where awakenings have truly occurred, it's because people came back to that seed that we're looking at. And the same way we're gonna see that seed planted in the hearts of those first century Christians, I believe that seed could be planted in our hearts. And God could do that work again. I believe that with all, all of my heart. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled, excited, and terrified at the thought of it. The seed contains the whole, not of a bloody revolution, but of a grace revolution, a Christ revolution. One anecdote from the awakening that extended into the 1800s in Northern Ireland, many of the prostitutes in Northern Ireland became Christians and were attending church. A newspaper reporter came up to to research this phenomenon, and he sat down with one of the prostitutes and said, why are you, all of you, suddenly attending church? And she said, well, for one thing, business has really fallen off. (laughs) And then she said, but also... It's the first time anybody's ever treated us with value and with grace. You see, not only were the immoral people abusing them, but so were the moral Christians. The moral Christians treated them as those that were below them, who were living in a life of sin, at best objects of their, of their charitable causes. But when the awakening occurs, And we recognize that we are no less in need of grace than others that we say are the sinners of our society. We all get level at the foot of the cross. Everyone's welcome to the table. Cultures are changed. Dwight Moody supposedly said, the world has yet to see what God can do through a person that's totally sold out for him. I used to hear that when I was growing up and thought, kind of sad. I thought about that as I was wrapping up this sermon on my notes, and it occurred to me that uh, I think Moody was wrong. I, I, think, I think we have seen exactly what God can do with people that are totally sold out for him. And I think he can do it again through us. Let's pray. As we come to your table, this moment I'm so keenly aware, Father, of why you gave it to us and why you said do it as often as you eat or drink because you knew we're so capable of drifting away, drifting away to something more sensible, more reasonable, less, um, less invasive, <laughs> less dangerous. It's so easy for us to drift away to something less transforming. 
And so you call us back to this table over and over again to remind us of who we are in you. We're grateful. We're grateful for the cross. We're grateful for the forgiveness that's ours. And as we partake, Father, we ask again that you infuse us with a power because of your presence in our life and a passion to share that life with others. In Jesus' name, amen.